You're listening to Feed, Play, Love, a podcast that's all about supporting parents as they bring up children. We've got experts and advice to help you through the more challenging bits of parenting. I'm Siobhan Hunt. Jacqueline Moriarty was once a media and entertainment lawyer before she threw it aside to take up what she was always destined to be, a writer. As a young girl, Jacqueline and her siblings would be encouraged to write stories for their dad. Of the six children, three have grown up to be professional writers. So if that's not a hint on how to get professional writers in your family, I don't know what is. Now a mum herself, she's just released her second adult fiction book. It's called Gravity is the Thing, and she's published several successful youth adult fiction books. Jacqueline, welcome to Feed, Play, Love. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Um, So what's it like having so many professional writers in one family? Does it lend itself to very interesting dinner discussions or <laughs> do you compare notes do you bounce ideas off each other it's um it's great actually i think i think i'm really lucky to have that everyone says well for a start the the two sisters who are not writers can get a bit annoyed about it in particular <laughs> they get annoyed by how often they are asked when are you going to write a book because they just <laughs> have no intention of ever writing a book but people always think it's funny to say to them okay now it's your turn so it's a bit irritating to them, but they're patient with us. And um, I, but having Leanne and Nicola being authors too means, oh, for one thing, they can understand the small things that might go wrong in publishing, where other people would just say, "Why does that matter?" Or just, "You're getting a book published. Why do you care that this little?" But I've noticed that we always text each other if you're irritated by something happening. Now I feel like I'm complaining about the publishing industry, but I'm not. Mostly we're happy. That's so, what siblings do, right? But it's still, I always yeah. text my sister when something annoys me that I know she'll understand. Exactly, That's yes. what siblings do. Yeah, so we do that about everything, but it's so great to be able to do that about and then get really angry on each other's behalf. Yes. righteous anger. Exactly. Let me out of Angry face emoticons and, yes, exactly, lots of capital letters, and then you can let it go. So, yeah. But also asking for advice about things and... People often say, are you competitive and jealous of each other, which we're not, except over um, anecdotes, because, you know, people want to put their family anecdotes in their books sometimes. Yes. And so there's a limited number. <laughs> there are limited resources, and it's we just always decided it's whoever gets in first <laughs> and puts it in a book. So that's, even though I love Liana Nicola's books, whenever I'm reading them, I stay up half the night to finish them because they, you can't stop reading, I find. But there's always this sort of suspense in the back of your mind, what family story is going to come in here that I, can't that use I can later. then no longer use. Exactly. <laughs> Do you think that um, your dad encouraging you guys to write like that, do you think that fed into your pursuit or your love of writing? I It definitely helped in this. Uh, I, I think I, I loved writing anyway, and that's why he that's why he started doing it because he noticed that it was Leanne is the first child and I was second and Nicola's down the bottom of the family she's number six so she always says well I didn't really get that because he by the time dad got to the number six child he just said you can have pocket money Um, (laughs) so I think he's got tired you can just have it I don't want to play these games anymore but um with with, at the start of the family he you know had these rules and like this is how it should work you should actually have to work for your money so for for me I 
wrote all the time anyway, and it's how I was really shy, and that's how I expressed myself, and I just loved going into the world of stories, so I would have written anyway. But I think the great thing about it was that it made it seem possible that you could actually, even in a, in a small way as a child, this could be a professional possibility. Mm. You can actually make money from it. And also, you know, I don't know if you write, but when you're a child, usually when you write and you want to write a novel, you start and after a couple of chapters and you stop because you're growing up, so you're moving on to the next story. So you, you never finish anything. And that makes you feel, what's wrong with me? I'm never going to be a writer. You're a seven-year-old really fretting, <laughs> about seven years old fretting. But because for dad, you had, it had to be a complete novel, so it had to be an exercise book wow. filled with words, then you made it happen. Yeah. And that was such a great, it gave you such a great sense of achievement and told you that it was possible. You can actually finish a book. Yes, that is incredible because it's also, for me, when I, I used to love writing as a kid, um, and but as I grew older, the idea of writing a book with that complete narrative arc right. and a plot that went beyond the opening scene exactly. was yeah. was kind of oh that's too big for me yeah. I'm I'm not big enough to do something like that but your dad gave you that gift early exactly on. yeah isn't Which, that fabulous I guess Nicola had to figure it out for herself <laughs> <laughs> she saw her was, sisters yeah. doing it and was like hey why not it must be in our genes exactly. Your English thesis, I have to go to this because I, I love what you did your English thesis on. It was on Roald Dahl, mm -hmm. so everyone knows. You now have a 12-year-old son. Does he love Roald Dahl as much as you did or he, do? Um, he, yeah, he did. Well, his name is Charlie, so he was he felt very connected to Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. That's kind of a book made for him. And he did um, – he's not as much a – of a reader as I had hoped he would be but I guess everyone's different and I have to just let it go I know you you think this is the most important thing in the world to make a reader of a child and I read books to him and I did read all the Roald Dahl books to him and he did love them it's a good point but then he um he never reads my books of course not so <laughs> he did I like, most of my books have been for young adults and then in the last few years, I wrote a couple of books for more 9 to 12-year-olds, which is more his age group. So it was he was 10, and the book was for, and the book was called The Extremely Inconvenient Adventures of Bronte Metalstone. And I thought, finally, he might read my book, because the others have all been a bit too old for him, and this is so extraordinary. He's going to, I've got a book that is for my own child. <laughs> but uh, he's not really a reader, as I said, and... But And I kept just gently suggesting, maybe you want to try this book. <laughs> Look at this book. <laughs> and then finally one day he said, okay, I'm going to try it. And he went into his room and was lying on his bed reading the book. And, that, and it went really quiet. And I was walking around the apartment and I was so, it was this amazing, that's my child in his room reading my book. And he's gone really quiet, so he must be loving it. And then after about 10 minutes, I looked in the door and he had actually put the book down. He was lying on his bed with his eyes closed and his arms across his chest, <laughs> crossed over his chest, and he had written this note and put it on his chest, which said, Here lies Charlie Moriarty died of reading his mother's book. <laughs> so, you he... ungrateful little son. <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> Which he found so funny. He thought it was the funniest thing he'd ever done. So I think he just, I think he stopped quite quickly just to make the joke because he thought this is funnier than, <laughs> he just finds it really strange that 
when he tries to read my books, he always says it's just too strange because I can think of only think of you writing them. Ah, well, you know, as they say, when he's like 28, you'll just have to wait till then. (laughs) Then he'll go, wow, mum, this is so amazing that you've written all of this. I'll let let it go. I'm so sorry I didn't appreciate it (laughs) at the time. You just wait. Just wait another two In every aspect of life, that's what you have to do, isn't it, with kids? Yes. Just wait. And that's, which which might, because my mum had six kids and then she fostered babies, which at the time we all just thought was fun. It's great having babies around to play with, and then as soon as the baby cried, we just gave gave it to mum. You take care of this now. Yeah. And when the baby cried in the night, she would get up to the baby. But she was also looking after all of us, completely driving us everywhere and doing all our laundry and everything. And that is something that all of us had no concept of, really, what was happening there until we started having children of our own. And then think, oh my God, how did she do that? Yes. You just have one new baby, because she always had usually had newborn babies that she was looking after and so they're awake every few hours through the night so you have one and think this is extraordinary and shocking and impossible how am I expected to do that and then you think how did my mother do that yeah so that's something that took a long time before like you said you have to wait and then you say mum hey I know, but it's just so hard to wait. (laughs) Um, I mentioned in the introduction that you used to work in a law firm. Um, Now you're a full-time writer. I'm not sure if you were at the law law firm when you had your son, Um, but if you had to choose between the two as being more compatible with parenting, (laughs) which would you choose? Because they're so different. (laughs) Definitely. um, I'm so happy that I'm being an author now because I've got friends who are still at the law firm and I remember what life was like at the law firm. I didn't have Charlie till after I was a full-time writer and I think often... He himself, every now and then, says, complains and says, why don't you go back to being a lawyer because then we'd be rich. <laughs> oh, because we're not, yeah. So it's, it's, the income is not the same as it might have been if I'd stayed a lawyer, but um, I think he might know in his heart or he'll realise one day that I can go to, it's just any kind of self-employment means you are free to go to his athletics carnivals and swimming carnivals and whenever there's a school concert, I just go to it. And I know people who work in law firms try to take time off to do these things, but it's impossible if you've got a court hearing or something. And when I was a lawyer, I used to work really long hours. So, mm. And it would have been... And even then, it was I found it difficult trying to get that work-life balance. Yes. And so if I had also had to try and focus on a child as well. So I have so much admiration for people who work in high-flying corporate jobs and have kids as well. But with writing... I imagine you have to be quite disciplined to finish a book because I'm, I'm sorry, I'm just going to, people can't see the book. It's a very thick book. Mm-hmm. Um, gravity is a thing, which is um, 472 pages yeah. requires quite a bit of discipline, I would argue. <laughs> um, is that a challenge? When, I mean, I know you can take time off because you're your own boss in a way. And in theory, you could write through the night if you had to. Um but is that kind of imposed self-discipline quite challenging when you've got a young one that is going to come and say, Mom, I want this, Mom, I want that? <laughs> and it's a good point because in some ways it's more difficult because you you have to be able to respect your own work. So you can think, the school wants a volunteer and I, I can do that if I want to because I don't have a, 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 um, an employer telling me I have to be here. But then you won't actually 
be working on your book. So I have, I do have to be quite ruthless, and I am am with protecting my time and saying these are my working hours when he's at school. So I can't. And when people say, when you work at home, people say, "Well, you're you're free, aren't you? Can't you make these phone calls for us to get the concert tickets? You come come out and have lunch with us." And so I always have to be quite ruthless about that. But in some ways, having a in a lot of ways, having a child made me a lot more disciplined than I had been, because I worked as a as a full time writer for a couple of years before Charlie was born, and that was when I was living in Montreal in um, Canada. And each day, I would think I just have to go and have a walk down by the canal, and now I have to have a go and have a cinnamon brioche in this cafe, in the cafe early. <laughs> no, I'm still not feeling inspired. I'll wait till the inspiration hits. Now I'm going to go. So I just always felt like I had this sort of idea of myself as waiting for inspiration. And so I did a lot of my writing then between midnight and 4 a.m. Wow. When I, with that kind of panic of, oh, I actually do have a deadline and I will not get any money if I just wander around drinking Cafe Alex. <laughs> so... When when Charlie was born, I um, just set up a system where I would write whenever he was sleeping, and I also had a babysitter come a couple of days a week and play with him for a few hours in the afternoon. So I had to be so disciplined to say, you have no choice but to write. He's sleeping. The moment he falls asleep, I'm going to my desk, and I'm not allowed to get up and wander around. I have to write for these hours. Oh, that's tough. <laughs> that's tough because what happened you can't just summon the inspiration the funny thing is sometimes yeah no sometimes you can't and I still do have days even though I'm just and that's an interesting point too because sometimes I also have to tell myself this isn't working you do need to just wander around for a while so it's trying to make the decision about is this just making excuses or do you really need to stop something with um, my last children's book, there was a point where I was, I just kept writing, writing, writing every day saying, this is my job, I have a deadline, I'm going to keep doing it. But in the back of my head thinking, this is bad, I don't like what I am writing here. Until I told myself, now you have to go and sit by the harbour and stare at the water for two hours. And it was really hard to make myself do it, but but I did it and it was exactly the right thing to do because I just had to clear my mind and do absolutely nothing. And then when I came back, the writing suddenly started working and I knew what the plot so it's this strange thing about the creative work that you have to allow freedom yeah absolutely I get my best ideas walking to the bathroom from here, <laughs> from here I'm like I can't work out what I have to do this about okay I'm going to the toilet and I come back and go, I've got it Elise this is what we can do um so I definitely understand that your new book Gravity is the Thing centers around a mysterious self-help book that starts <laughs> arriving at your protagonist's door when she's a teenager Abigail how did this self-help book come to be kind of the the key in this book, the, the almost a character in itself, right? <laughs> it was just this idea I had a long time ago. So I, w- I wrote this book over about 15 years and I read a lot of, because I, it wants, I want to explore the self-help industry and movements in self-help and, you know, big books that made a splash like The Secret and The and I'm okay, you're okay, that was from a longer ago, and the Celestine Prophets. All the books that jump up and everyone's reading them suddenly. And um, so I did a lot of research because I want to understand what's going on with these books and kind of make fun of them a little bit, but without being too satirical. So gently mock, but also take them seriously too. That's what I was wanting to do. But the idea of the guidebook came even before that, and that was just 
because I felt like it's so strange the way we all live our lives in this random ad hoc way where we don't really know what we're doing. So when you're <laughs> Yes, that's true. <laughs> when you're a child, your parents tell you what to do and the school tells you what to do and then as you get older it's just okay, now you're out in the world, you make your own decisions and you just figuring it out as you go along and you're asking people what to do and you're getting advice from bits and pieces, fragmented just and Things like you should be going to, how often you should be going to the dentist and when you should start moisturizing, whether you should learn a, <laughs> learn a language and, and whether you should be making your own bread, all these things. <laughs> yes. You just often don't know what to do until a friend tells you, like, unless you have some wise person telling you. So I just loved the idea of having a kind of committee for everyone who would send you updates on this is the point you are in your life, this is what you should be doing. Now I think you need to start having a baby because you are at this age. <laughs> <laughs> Don't wait, your eggs are dying. That's what someone said to me, actually. So. Uh, no. <laughs> I'd but rather a self-help book to do it. Yeah. yeah, and you'd hate it anyway. You wouldn't want, I know it doesn't make sense because someone telling you that, you would just be defiant anyway. Don't you dare tell me it's time to have a baby. I'm going to wait till I'm ready. But still it was this fantasy of this all-wise being who would say this is this is for you and this is exactly what you need or even this relationship that you're in at the moment where you can't decide whether you should stay or not you should go and don't worry you're going to meet somebody else next year that kind of thing where you have to figure it all out yourself and you ask people for advice but people just give you advice based on their own experiences they they don't nobody knows we'll be back with Jacqueline on feed play love in just a moment Sometimes parenting can be challenging and sometimes it can be a downright laugh. What we're really talking about is your son thinks babies are made through hugging. You have to rectify this problem, Because now every time he hugs you, he's like, are you pregnant or am I pregnant? I'm Siobhan Hunt and A Parent Panel is a weekly podcast I host where we invite a mum and a dad to discuss the events and stories of the week. The Parent Panel, available wherever you get your podcasts. So this is going to be a very tangential question, but the Celestine prophecy, <laughs> I could never get through that book. What is going on there? Wait, too many bloody metaphors. <laughs> I don't know. Did you get anything out of it? I it was. I uh, maybe was... I missed my, what is it, Paul, Paolo Coelho, or how do you say uh, I yeah, I don't know how to say Anyway, it seemed anyway. very yeah. mysterious, but I could. I just looked at the, I just, no, it's too hard. Yeah. <laughs> just I tell me what I need to know. Somebody else wrote the Celestine Prophecy. I can't remember oh, who wrote it. Wasn't. it. I don't think that was him, but um, I might be wrong. I should look that up. Doesn't matter. I? I should if people, know. If people want to read it, but it's a little bit tricky. <laughs> it's um, But the Celestine Prophecy was, it's a, such a, I didn't read it at the time. So partly that's why I was interested in researching for this book because I had never read any self-help books and I'd always been quite cynical about them. So I thought I should immerse myself in them. And so many of them just seem preposterous. And then I think... In what way? Just, well, for example, the Celestine Prophecy was, it, I don't... I don't know if I can give away the ending. Go on. But, um, Spoiler alert. Any, yeah, Lock your ears. <laughs> it's, it's, I, I, this guy traveling around um, trying to, I can't remember exactly what he's looking for, but the theme of the book is that, for, first of all, that coincidences have power and when there's a coincidence in your life, it's not just a meaningless coincidence, it's a message that you should listen to and it's telling you something about your life. And if you meet a random stranger in a, in a bus, they've got a message that is going to help guide you through life. So that 
seems I can understand why that's appealing because everyone's looking for meaning in life so why not find it in strangers or coincidences so it's a bit nonsensical really but why not look why not why not it's fine yeah. but then when you keep going with the book it says the end of that's what we're all supposed to figure out we're supposed to find out what messages other people have for us and then we have to give messages to other people and eventually we are all going to be getting our energy from nature and not have to do any work and then we'll all start <laughs> we'll all start vibrating and then we'll turn invisible and so I finished I, this book and said what that sounds a little bit close to Scientology if it you does ask me. True, yeah. <laughs> see but, I kind of get the coincidence stuff yeah I'm like that's just kind of positive thinking right yeah. you say something bad happens to you you can either suck lemons or make lemonade it's your choice right right? and you can say okay this is a sign that because when you said the random person on the bus I thought of all those horrible (laughs) people who yell racist comments and I thought well what message is that (laughs) and then you think well okay maybe it's a message that I handled this well and I didn't you know you can do that anyway we've just jumped into self-help because I mean it is an interesting area I mean how did you feel when you came out the end of all that research were you like was it like having walked through a shopping centre and been bombarded with too many ads or was it, <laughs> or did you feel like, oh, okay, there was a general thread of wisdom running through some of it? Yeah, that's a good question. And it was both of those things. There's definitely a thread of wisdom in most of them and that's why they are successful. And usually that's what people are picking up on and that's why it becomes big. But there's also, uh, it also I also found it really troubling, a lot of them, that um, the messages are often, it is all up to the individual. If an individual is failing, it is that individual's own fault. So they need that message because they're telling you, you can make anything happen, which in, in a sense is a good message, but also to be sending out this idea, anybody who fails, it's their own fault. Everyone has to be for themselves. And then you are missing out on the reason why that, that you know, that idea of bad luck is just, there's no such thing as bad luck. It's you bring on your own luck when in fact there is bad luck and there are social structures that keep a lot of people down and make it impossible for people to to succeed and bad things. So there are books that say, if you get sick, it's because you're sending negative energy out into the universe and the universe is responding in this way. And you can heal yourself by... So in a way, it gives people hope because they can say, yes, I can heal myself, but it's also really cruel because you don't get sick because you were a bad person in a former life or because you are negative or you get sick because people get sick. Mm. So, and not everybody can heal. Sometimes you can use positive energy and it will help you to get better, but that doesn't always work. And with those sorts of profound realizations after such a lot of research into that area, does it kind of seep into your writing or do you actually have to plot how you will use what you've learned? Do you know what I mean? Like, did you no, have an actual, a... you know, were you just oozing self-help <laughs> when you sat down to write this book? I think that's why it took so long to write because I had to separate myself from each of them. So it did infiltrate my consciousness. A lot of the books did, even though I was being cynical about them. At the same time, I would find myself thinking, I am going to stare at that tree and take (laughs) its energy. So you want to believe in it at the same time as you are, and it messes with your mind. And I did not want my novel to, I wanted my novel to try to separate itself from all of those things. And 
talk about those books without being too judgmental and without being too satirical because I also know they mean a lot to a lot of people. There are people who's, who have told me my life changed and I became the person I am today because of this particular book. So I would be wrong to just be dismissive, I think. So I, and a lot of the, so I, I wrote hundreds and hundreds of pages of notes and a lot of them didn't end up in the book. So it had to be a story foremost. So there's lots of drafts where eventually I was I was really cutting out a lot of my self-help analysis because it's a novel more than a, it's not a book about self-help. It's a novel about Abigail, whose brother has gone missing and who is trying to understand what life is about and trying to deal with living with this ambiguous loss where if someone has gone missing in your life, there is hope that they might come back and there's also despair because they might never come back and you have to try and live in this impossible balance and that's something that I found so um, moving and uh, distressing uh, the more I researched that. So I was researching missing persons as much as self-help. So it was really from Abigail's perspective, um, having what's this like, having trying to find the answer when you don't know the, the one answer that you need, yeah. which is where's my brother gone. Yeah. So it's very... It's that being in that space of not knowing. Everyone's uncomfortable with a degree of that, but when it's about exactly. someone you love, then yeah. how on earth? Exactly. You mentioned um, earlier that you write, read your sister's novels sometimes and go, oh, which family anecdote's <laughs> going to be in there? Um, Abigail, in this book, is a mum of a young son. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's some musings on parenthood there and her relationship with her son. Um, are you mining your own life experience in that particular situation? Because you've had a young son. You still have a young son, but he's not as young as the boy <laughs> in this book. Um, do you go back to your own feelings to sort of try and bring that to life? Yeah, a lot of the uh, – I also do a lot of my work in cafes, and Abigail has a cafe in the book, which is called The Happiness Cafe, and a lot of the conversations she overhears in her cafe are – based on conversations I've overheard in cafes myself. So I stole them. But definitely I I keep a diary um, as much as I can and just um, on my computer. And I think even more when my little boy, he's 12 now, but when he was three or four, which is the age of um, Oscar in the book, I was writing almost every day because, you know, they say such unexpected things at three, four, five. And they're the kind of things that if you don't write them down, you forget because they're they're like dreams that – they're irrational, but they also make a kind of sense. They're almost like messages from the universe, it feels like. But so I did keep the diary for a lot of that time, and I went back to that to remind myself. So there's a lot of Charlie in the there's, character there's of There's so many parents listening to you now going, damn it, I've got to stop <laughs> writing. I mean, that, that diary practice, um, that is something that um, – people who, counsellors and positive psychologists and other people in the self-help sort of area would recommend people write a diary Mm -hmm. every night. And I have been told so many times that it's a really good practice to do, but find it so, so hard. Do you think that your discipline as a writer helped you to do that? Or like you said, was it something that you've always done? It's not, no, I'm trying to remember if I, I always kept holiday diaries. And when I was a teenager, because people said, when you, if you want to be a writer, you should keep a diary. I tried to keep a diary then. Oh, but, God, my teenage yeah, diary. I've kept all my diaries. I kept a diary every year up until my 20s, 30s. And now I, I, I'm in this weird situation. Like I 
I want to burn them because they are so embarrassing. <laughs> and then there's part of me is like, but that's me. Exactly. That's my soul. Those are my thoughts. <laughs> and then you think, oh, but if someone read what you wrote <laughs> that time when you were really angry. <laughs> I know, a giant, I hate my sisters <laughs> in huge. I know, I feel exactly the same way about my teenage diaries. So I, but I don't, they were bad writing and I don't think they helped my writing at all because it was, I was it was an artificial construct, I think, even though I wrote these sort of mean, it was either boring writing, I'm so miserable, I hate myself, I'm so ugly, I've got five pimples or whatever, or, or just angry, angry, I hate my life, I hate my family. Or I love this exactly. boy. <laughs> oh no, it's another boy next week. Exactly. So I've, I didn't really start doing that, um, keeping a proper journal until, um, and it was almost I was doing it for therapy in a sense rather than for writing but then it became helpful for writing when because my marriage broke up when my when my son was a few weeks old and that wow. was a big shock at the time and because we'd been together for 10 years or 11 years I think and what a time for that to yeah happen. so and it was yeah it took me years to get over that and so writing um and I typed rather than writing and I was doing it for myself rather than for this idea of who I was like I did it as a teenager and and then gradually I stopped writing about that issue and started just making it a journal about life and and to try to help my writing. And it was like a stream of consciousness thing. And it was so it was kind of therapy, also stream of consciousness. And each time I wrote I tried to come up with some image or um or description or describe a conversation I'd had, an unexpected conversation I'd had that day, and that helped with the thera therapeutic effect, but also really helped with writing because you it, it um, is helping your powers of observation, I think. Yeah, how and, fabulous. Would you say that's the difference between journal writing and keeping a diary? Like a journal's actually observing the world around you and a diary's possibly more personal emotions. Yeah, and, probably, yes. I'm just saying that to myself. Yeah, maybe. Like, oh, I definitely did not keep a journal. <laughs> they were diaries, people. <laughs> oh, my goodness. I could talk to you all afternoon, Jacqueline, but um, I must let you go. Okay. <laughs> You've got to go and write some more. <laughs> um, thank you so much. Um, and your book, Gravity is the Thing, is out now. Is that correct? It is, yeah, it is. just in the last couple of days. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Thanks, Jacqueline. Pleasure. That's Jacqueline Moriarty. She's the author of Gravity is the Thing. You can find links to the book in the notes of this episode. In the next episode of Feed, Play, Love, we'll be back with Helpline and our resident mothercraft expert, Chris Minogue, answering all your parenting questions. So it, it, there's many different ways of doing it, but if I would just stick to the basics, listening, going in when it's an active cry, helping him to settle. The other thing that I think doesn't get across is that it takes between five minutes and 15 minutes to settle a baby. So it's not a two-minute thing and it's not a one-minute thing. It's, it's a distance thing yep. and it's that consistency. And, and I think if you stick at it, you will pay, it will pay off and in a month's time you'll be in a better place. Yeah. As someone who didn't do any of those things, <laughs> I recommend Chris's method. Um, yeah. I just, Her honesty I would, is amazing, I isn't wrote, it? <laughs> if you want to ask Chris your questions, you can email them to us directly. The email is helpline at theparentbrand.com.au. Feed Play Love is produced by Elise Cooper, written and hosted by me, Siobhan Hunt.